You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Adam. Hi, Bob. How you doing? Good. Thanks for having me on. My, <clears throat> my pleasure. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is a Non-Zero Podcast. Um, you're Adam Dean, political scientist at George Washington University. Uh, author of a new book, new book published by Cambridge University Press called Opening Up by Cracking Down Labor Repression and Trade Liberalization in Democratic Developing Countries. Um, and it, it raises a lot of issues about the, the plight of organized labor in an era of international trade and globalization and so on. And I want to get to as many of those as we can. Uh, and use your book as a vehicle for doing that. But first, I should say, by way of full disclosure, you're a, for, a former student of mine. Uh, and employee. I, what's that? And employee. And employee. Uh, uh, for a while, not not for long. You you. Uh, I guess you finally found a higher wage job. Apparently, <laughs> um, the uh, and when I guess I it was about twenty years ago, maybe spring of two thousand one. Were you at Penn then? That, yeah, yeah, it would have been spring of um, probably 20, 20, 2003, because I started in two, the fall of 2002. See, I'm not sure that's possible, but we don't need to litigate that now. <laughs> um, anyway, were you a freshman? I was a freshman. I took a class with you, and then I was your research assistant one summer. Right. And uh, and uh, I guess it goes without saying that... Uh, had you not had a role model like me at an impressionable age, you wouldn't have amounted to much of anything, right? <laughs> I will say that one of the first things you had me do was to watch uh, recordings of interviews you had done with professors. And then my job was to edit them down to uh, little bits and categorize the topic. So it's exciting for me to be on the opposite end of one of these interviews. To, be, to be an actual professor being mm -hmm. recorded. Yeah, I guess I haven't advanced much over the last <laughs> 20 years. Apparently, I'm still doing the same thing I was then. Oh, well. <laughs> um, but you're doing it very well. Oh, I bet you say that to all the podcasters. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, let me let me put a pen in a couple of issues that I want to get back to before this before we get into the uh, the specific argument in your book, which is just that obviously these issues are important. Uh, Donald Trump was elected in no small part, I think. Uh, because of the perception, which I think was to some extent accurate, that American jobs, because of uh, international trade, had gone to developing countries, most notably China. Um, and I also want to say that, although I'm not in the habit of speaking highly of Donald Trump, he did, in, in, in renegotiating NAFTA, and creating what I call NAFTA too, and he, he called something else, uh, some other acronym. Um, he actually came up with what I thought was a very interesting uh, provision having to do with uh, cars, the manufacture of cars that were eligible for preferable treatment under NAFTA and the, the way, how many of the, what percentage of the parts had to be manufactured in, in factories that paid a certain wage uh, because I thought that it was actually innovative in a certain way. And I want to talk about that uh, as a possible example of the kind of thing that there needs to be more of if the uh, impact on workers in uh, 
Well, it'll have implications for workers in both developing and developed uh, countries. And I want to get into that. Final final thing I want to say is that um, we are now moving apparently toward a period of lower economic engagement with certain uh, big low-wage countries like China. Um, And that's going to have implications. And I think some American workers may welcome that. Uh, I, I think it, there are two sides of this coin. I think economic engagement has a number of virtues, including possibly uh, reducing the chances of uh, nuclear war or World War III. So, uh, you know, there's kind of something lost and something gained. It's a very complex set of issues. Um, and your book approaches all this from a very interesting angle that probably a lot of people haven't thought about. So why don't you... Uh, start off by telling us um, there, there, there's a there's a view that has been prevalent in your area of kind of political economy that you're arguing against, right? Want to tell us what that view is? Yeah, I would start off by saying that there there were sort of two different conventional takes on the question of why developing countries opened up their economies in the 1980s and 1990s. Uh, the first one was that this was about the third wave of democratization. So you got uh, democratization across the developing world, uh, increasingly in the 80s and 90s. And the argument had been that uh, free trade was going to increase wages and create new job opportunities for workers in developing countries. And so once you let the population vote in those countries, they sort of rationally anticipated that free trade would be beneficial. And so they voted for and demanded trade liberalization. They demanded the opening of their economy for their own economic well-being. And what uh, are some of the countries that you that you have in mind when you talk about developing countries that, well, that did or didn't open up? Yeah, so mo- almost all countries did eventually open. So that the, you know, I'm not making an argument that, that it's wrong that countries open. Tariffs uh, dropped, you know, across the developing world during this period. It's really a debate about how and why that that happened. Okay. So South America, India. Yeah, the book the book looks most specifically at Argentina and India, mm-hmm. uh, but then also looks at Bolivia, Mexico, and Turkey, uh, and those that's in terms of like historical case studies. And then I do some statistical analysis of data from over a hundred developing countries, basically all uh, almost all developing countries from the 1980s and 1990s, uh, for which data on trade and different uh, sorts of respect for workers' rights, things like that, for which data is available. Uh, and I'm able to support the the argument, which I'm happy to talk more about, uh, using both this sort of statistical analysis and qualitative historical analysis. Okay. So the view had been that democratization facilitated the movement toward lower tariffs and economic engagement in these developing countries? Yeah, and it's sort of a, a story sort of end of history type story of like all good things going together. So democracy gives rise to free trade, free trade leads to like the alleviation of poverty. And it's this sort of like happy feedback loop. Um, The sort of starting point for me in in why I I wanted to look more deeply at this question uh, from a sort of critical point of view uh, was that this idea that all workers in developing countries saw trade as a potential benefit and they, that they stood to gain from, from trade liberalization, ignored uh, what I had known sort of before I even started looking into this in depth, which was that 
labor unions in developing countries were really strongly opposed to these reforms. Mm -hmm. There was a not only a segment of, the, of, of workers in developing countries, but the most highly organized and most politically powerful and, and relevant group of workers, which were on the other side of this. They, okay. were, they were opposing these reforms. Let's talk about why that is. And first, I want to say that, you know, when you say the, the kind of refer to the end of history view that all good things go together, uh, I, I, I guess the one exception was that surely there were people acknowledging even even within this framework that in developed countries, at least some workers will be adversely affected. That was widely thought to be the case. For right? sure. But, the conventional view was that workers in the United States and other developed countries would be hurt by trade right. and that workers in developing countries would benefit. Which is intuitively, you know, makes sense because what's going to hurt the workers in developed high wage countries is the, the, the movement of work toward lower wage countries. And so now what I want to hear is why was there the resistance of labor unions in the developing countries, since intuitively it makes sense that workers in those countries would benefit from lower tariffs? Yeah, so you see two, two different things. One is that, you know, the idea that countries were opening, you know, is sort of skipping forward too much. This means that before they were closed. So for most of the 20th century, especially since World War II, many, many developing countries pursued a developmental strategy called uh, import substitution industrialization. And this involved having really high tariffs to try to prop up and develop new industries. So think about Argentina and India. These countries in the 80s, when it came time for them to, when they started to pursue opening the economy, they had these industries that weren't going to be able to compete. Very similar to the logic in the United States, right? Where the steel industry, um, you know, the auto industry, the furniture industry, the textile industry, lots of industries in the United States had a hard time competing with uh, cheaper imports. So also India and Argentina, these were countries that had slowly built up and protected industries like the auto industry, like the steel industry, especially. And these industries were not going to be able to compete once they lowered tariffs. And the unions representing workers in those industries recognized that. Okay. And they lobbied very strongly and protested and launched general strikes to try to block those reforms, knowing that it would lead to lower wages and massive layoffs for workers so, in the industry. So is it the case that there were workers in most of these countries that benefited, but they tended not to be unionized? Like all of the all of the closing labels that said, you know, made in Guatemala. I mean, I know that's not a case study of yours, but you know what I mean? Uh, did those tend to be like not uh, unionized because they had never been uh, protected industries or something? Yeah. So the basic idea is that in developing countries, if you subset it just into like, you know, very sort of simplified terms, import competing and export oriented industries, there were enormous gains for export oriented industries in developing countries like okay. the imports from China. Uh, the import competing industries lost. Mm -hmm. Employers in that industry knew that. Unions representing workers in those industries knew that. The problem is that the workers in, in uh, export oriented industries very rarely if ever had unions mm -hmm. and never had a sort of commitment from their employers that wages would rise with the profits of those industries. So workers in those industries were often very skeptical that they would actually share in the benefits. Employment opportunities would increase, but this idea that wages were going to rise in those industries, you know, slowly over decades or generations, we've seen wage increases. Uh, but workers in those industries uh, had very little political power, was not organized. And even when they were, they were, they were never very confident that they would share in those benefits. So what that meant was that Unions as a sort of like umbrella organization like the AFL-CIO, your listeners probably will be most familiar with here, but 
these sort of labor federations in India and Argentina and Bolivia and Mexico and lots of countries, you know, they're sort of like uh, representing workers throughout the economy. And it's those old protectionist unions in the industries that we're going to lose, like the steel industry, that had the largest voice in those confederations. And so those confederations as a whole often came out very strongly against trade liberalization, even, even if in the background there was the potential for benefit for other workers that weren't. Okay. So, so these politically powerful unions, sometimes politically powerful Mm -hmm. in developing countries often oppose trade liberalization and yet it often happened. And that's what you, uh, one thing you explain in the book, how, why, how did that happen? Yeah. So the, so the first point was to say like, look, there were these unions that were opposed. And so it's not so simple to just say like democracy empowers workers workers wanted free trade, end of story. You know, we have to reckon with with unions that were opposed and and how their opposition was overcome. And so that actually takes us to a a sort of, uh, this might be a little confusing, but there's another conventional wisdom in a separate field. So that first one was sort of from international uh, relations or international political economy. And then this other sort of silo of political science called comparative politics, or even more narrowly comparative political economy. People had long recognized that unions in developing countries, we're going to oppose these kinds of reforms. Um, so there's sort of like, you know, blinders. All scholars have, have their own theoretical blinders. Uh, in this other uh, region of the field, people knew unions were going to oppose. In fact, it was the reason for many years that scholars, scholars had argued that uh, democratic developing countries were not going to open their economies because they were going to face all this opposition. The dictatorships uh, of Pinochet in Chile that could... Uh, you know, and did very brutally repress the opposition, those countries opened first, you know, Pinochet in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. So for, for many years, people thought democracy was going to be an impediment because of the inability to repress the opposition in order to, to open up. And, so, and, I, and I'm, I'm curious, just uh, did people like Pinochet, the first thing that comes to mind is that they're working on behalf of industrialists, on behalf of capital when they opened up. Did as a political matter, did they happen to often also court support um, from uh, well, was that it was that was that kind of the extent of the constituency that was driving liberalization? I'm not an expert on the case of liberalization in Chile, but, you know, I don't think anybody would argue that Pinochet had broad support from the population for anything he did. Um, You know, again, I'm not an expert, but I, I wouldn't think of Pinochet as responsive to like you know, the average, the average worker in Chile, that, that would certainly be beyond the pale. It was okay. a brutal dictatorship. But I will say that in, in democratic countries, one, you know, following a transition to democracy, yeah, I'm, I'm relatively agnostic on the demands for free trade. So the, I think you're right that these export-oriented businesses uh, were definitely lobbying for, and there's clear evidence of that, that they wanted trade liberalization for their own economic benefits. But it's also the case there's public there's evidence of from public surveys uh, in the 80s and 90s showing that trade liberalization was you know not unanimously popular but but often had something like a majority uh, support and there's lots of different reasons why that might be like that first conventional story we talked about was that they rationally anticipated that free trade would increase their wages and employment opportunities but there's also this idea that there were economic crises high inflation in the 80s people came to see any kind of reform is better than the status quo, even if they didn't think it was going to directly benefit them in those ways. And then there's also the idea of, of ideology. This is like the age of neoliberalism, the spread of Margaret Thatcher's famous phrase, there is no alternative. 
Um, so there was broader support for these reforms, but um, you know, from the from the public, and there was organized support and demands from export-oriented businesses or capitalists. Um, so those things were those people were pushing for openness. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to make is that unions were were pushing against. Unions were very strongly opposed. Okay. And so in that sort of second conventional story we talked about that recognizes that unions were opposed, they started off with this comparison with Pinochet and the dictatorships to say democracies can't repress like dictatorships to repress is to become an authoritarian regime. So how did democracies end up opening? Because they did in the 80s, the early 90s, they started opening. So scholars started puzzling about like, what were the menu of options? How did democratic governments, who by definition, they said, can't repress, end up overcoming this opposition from unions? And they came up with a long list of, of different things. Sometimes it was the unions were aligned with the political parties. So they had loyalty to a labor-backed party. They trusted them to make these reforms that must be necessary. Other people sort of praised the genius of the political leader, how they obfuscated what was really going on and tricked the opposition. And then the real prominent one is probably welfare compensation, that democracies recognize that some people are going to be hurt by reform. And so they offer them a a safety net, job retraining, uh, unemployment benefits, um, different things to sort of soften the dislocation from free trade. And so there's this impressive, you know, list of different things that democratic governments did. And I, and, I, and there's evidence that all of those things uh, were done. Uh, the point I try to make in the book is that there was also a very strategic use of labor repression to weaken labor unions, uh, to silence their opposition, and to facilitate the process of trade liberalization. And that that labor repression has been basically completely written out of the stories that we write, the stories that we tell, teach our students. Uh, and so this book is a sort of revisionist account, both theoretically in terms of like the moving pieces of the politics of globalization, but then also empirically sort of setting the record straight about what really happened in these democratic countries in terms of overcoming union opposition. And that labor repression is often, you know, a pretty sordid affair, arresting union leaders. Happy to go into the details. Yeah, what is the array of tools? I assume there's a spectrum of relatively benign, uh, well, maybe so benign that repression is a slightly misleading word. I don't know. Uh, all the way to to harsh. You know, you open the book with somebody blowing up somebody's car. That's not nice. Uh, fortunately, I think nobody died, right? Uh, yes. well, that was in Argentina. It was in Argentina. It was the, a bomb blowing up the, the car of the head of the Labor Union Confederation, a man named Saul Ubaldini. This happened in 1989. Was the idea that he wouldn't be in the car, they were just sending a message, or were they trying to kill him, or do we know? Uh, the people I spoke with in Argentina, I was there in 2019, right before the um, the pandemic started. And, you know, I spoke with uh, different union leaders that had known Ubaldini. Ubaldini passed away in the early 2000s. Uh, but I got to meet his son, who's also named Saul Ubaldini. It was very helpful introducing me to the old labor union leaders that his father had been friendly with. Uh, as well as the the chauffeur and bodyguard who parked the car the night that it blew up. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's never any investigation. It's hard to say uh, definitively who who planted the bomb uh, or what the intent was. Uh, some some scholars I spoke with said that it was best to see this as a as a threat to what would happen. Mm-hmm. People who continued to oppose the president's uh, trade liberalization and other economic reforms. And another um, uh, Argentine labor union leader. Uh, who, who said that he'd also lived through many death threats throughout his years, especially during the 
the dirty war during the dictatorship in the late 70s and early 80s. And he said to me very chillingly, he said, uh, in this country, if they want to kill you, they kill you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he was a little dismissive, uh, believe it or not, of the of the car bomb. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, the timing of the car bomb is really crucial. Uh, so what's basically going on here, this is to back up a little bit, this is in Argentina in 1989. Uh, and it's uh, basically the very beginning of the presidency of Carlos Menem, who's just the second uh, elected democratic president of Argentina after the return of democracy in 1983. Uh, so from 83 to 89, there's a president named Raul Alfonsín, and he, he tries throughout his presidency, throughout six years, to open up the Argentine economy to lower tariffs, uh, to privatize a lot of industries. Uh, and these uh, reforms that he's proposing trigger a wave of general strikes from Saúl Ubaldini and his, and his labor union called the CGT. There's actually 13 general strikes uh, throughout the six-year presidency that basically paralyze uh, the economy during the strikes and, and lead Alfonsín to, to back down. And at the end of his presidency, tariffs are almost the same as they were when he started his presidency in 83. So when Carlos Menem is elected and he, and he announces that he's going to try to implement the same kind of reforms, it's very clear to him and everyone in Argentina that Ubaldini and the unions are going to oppose these reforms just like they had for years and that they're going to pose a real challenge, a real obstacle to implementing the reforms. And so what happens with that bomb is it's during the first few months of Menem's presidency where he's very clearly trying to oust Ubaldini from the union. He offers him first some benign things. He says, you know, you could you could be an ambassador overseas to the ILO. You could be an ambassador, I think, to Spain at one point, he offers him. Uh, at one point, the front page of the newspaper says today, Menem didn't offer Ubaldini a single ambassadorship of ambassadorship. This is sort of like, you know, comical coverage Mm -hmm. that Menem is clearly trying to get rid of him. Then then it starts to get a little bit more intense. uh, And Menem uh, tries to uh, remove Ubaldini through various uh, means of labor repression. Mm -hmm. So despite Menem being very clear that he wants Ubaldini out and there are some union leaders siding with him, the union has a vote. In, in 1989 and, and decides to keep Ubaldini as the head of the, the union, even though Ubaldini is clearly opposing these reforms and Menem is calling for his, his ousting. Then after he's won this vote, uh, Menem uh, negotiates with some union leaders. They should have a new meeting to decide whether or not they should change the rules of the unions to have a new vote to oust Ubaldini, right? So he's just won re-election. The president is meddling in, in union affairs in this way. And it's the night before that meeting where union leaders are going to decide, should we change the rules to try again to oust this union leader the president doesn't want? It's the night before that meeting that the car blows up. Now, that's weird because you can imagine that working two ways, right? I mean, you can imagine the union rank and file. Were they going to do the voting on this? The 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 it's the leaders of different unions in the confederations. I think oh, I see. Then you, uh, I, I get the message. It's like we're 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 capable of blowing up the cars of union leaders. How do you want to vote? Yeah. So then, okay. so then the next morning they they vote and they say like, okay, let's change the rules, and uh, like two months from now we'll have another vote to see whether or not Ubaldini can still be, be the president. And then during those next few months, uh, cabinet ministers of Menem's uh, uh, administration start to meddle again and pressure labor unions. So it was a close vote. This is important to keep in mind. Ubaldini won that first vote, 53% to 47%. So Menem only had to shift a few few votes one way or the other. 
And so they do this in, in two ways. One, uh, the Minister of Labor simply replaces the head of several unions in Argentina, which is uh, a clear violation of workers' rights. Uh, what, did not even comply with uh, law in Argentina? Uh, it's debatable when the, yeah. the government itself is the one doing this, uh, whether or not it's a violation. And, and we should say that in your book, when you talk about repression, you, mm. you mean a spectrum of things ranging from clear violation of the national laws to things that don't violate the national laws, but do violate international labor standards as articulated by, for example, the United Nations and so on, right? Yeah, or the, the ILO most, most specifically. Okay. So these are like, if there's a country where workers don't have the right to strike. Which is the International Labor Organization. Is that not under the UN's auspices? Or, or a lot of things technically are, but anyway. Uh, so, so it's, um, yeah, so it's a range of things, you know, uh, arresting people for striking. It's a violation of, of labor rights, even if the government is doing it, right? So the point is, like, if if a government does not protect the right of workers to have a union, uh -huh. then that's a violation of labor rights that ought to exist, right? So it's not just looking at violations of the right. country laws. So anyway, so they intervene and they replace the heads of some unions. And then there's a, a, another new program in Argentina at this point. Uh, workers used to have um, money deducted from their paychecks and go direct to the union to pay for different sort of like social welfare benefits that were administered by the union. Under Menem, they changed this. Instead of going right to the union, it goes to the government first, and then mm -hmm. the government distributes to the unions. And the the cabinet minister or um, from the Menem administration who's in charge of this program called Obras Sociales clearly uses this as like a, a stick threatening union leaders. And all of the union leaders I spoke with in 2019 remembered this very clearly threatening union leaders that if they didn't vote uh, the right way against Ubaldini, that they would withhold these funds that are supposed to go to the union. With those, you know, those those that, those are instances of labor, labor repression. It's the manipulation of union funds by the government, the replacing of union leaders uh, by the government, and, and then the car bomb, obviously. And mm -hmm. after that, they have a vote and Ubaldini loses, this time 47 to 53. And the union movement splits. After it splits in half, uh, half of it continues to be led by Ubaldini, who, again, had been like the, the symbol of opposition to neoliberalism throughout the 1980s. Uh, and the Argentine press during this period still thinks very clearly that Ubaldini and his labor union confederation, which includes the metal workers, the largest, this highly protectionist labor union in the country, uh, that they still pose a huge threat to Menem's reforms, that they're going to launch a general strike, just like they had in the earlier 80s, to block mm -hmm. the reforms. And then the rest of that chapter in my book goes through like a litany of, of strategic uses of labor repression. So first, the Menem administration declares individual strikes to be illegal. When unions aligned with Ubaldini say that they're going to go on strike, they arrest workers that go on strike. They decertify unions that go on strike, so they're no longer legally recognized. There's a sit-down strike at the telecommunications company. Menem breaks it with the military. He sends in the military to carry people out which is a, a, it was a very shocking thing in Argentina just seven years after the return uh, of democracy from a military dictatorship to have a democratic president break a strike with the military. And then ultimately, the Ubaldini faction announces a general strike and they vote unanimously uh, to have this general strike. And Menem declares that strikes are illegal uh, in the public sector, which is the heart of Ubaldini's support. Uh, and so, like all of all of these are instances of, of labor repression that have been written out of the story, 
uh, about the ways in which Menem overcame the opposition of unions uh, in Argentina. The conventional story has just been to say that unions went along with the reforms and they ignore those first you know, year and a half of Menem's administration where he splits the union movement in half and then slowly whittles down the unions that continue to oppose his reforms. Okay. So let me ask a question about this as compared with labor in uh, developed countries. So in a certain sense, they were uh, these unions in Argentina and in some other developing countries were in the same situation as American unions threatened by international trade, let's say the United Auto Workers or something. Um, Now, my understanding is that although there have been times in uh, American history when uh, the federal government got heavy handed with labor and broke up strikes and so on, um, I don't recall a lot of that. Now, it it may be uh, that the trade liberalization in our country was already pretty well in place. Like we already had low tariffs and then the the competition kind of snuck up on our unions in the sense that it took a while to kind of, you know, whatever, build the factories in developing countries and, and for, you know, and infuse the the workers with the know-how and so on. Uh, so is is that the reason that the story seems to have? Because as I recall, what happened with American unions was that they just slowly lost power because the companies increasingly had the option of, well, well, they could move stuff offshore. Or they could just say, look, we're competing with Toyota, man. You know, we're, we're, we can't keep selling cars and paying this much and so on. Right. I, so. I it's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. You know, basically, what, how did, why and how did this play out differently in developed countries? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think the most relevant uh, period to compare it to in the United States is actually in the 1940s, uh, when the U.S. like really decides to open up for the first time. Right. So rather than this kind of like creeping liberalization later on in the 40s, uh, the 30s and the 40s, there's this real decision by, by the Roosevelt administration to open up. Right. So the United States had had very, very high tariffs basically since its founding, uh, certainly throughout the 19th century and early 20th century, and uh, really decides to open up with what's called the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act under under the uh, Roosevelt administration. Uh, In the 1940s, there's this big debate about whether or not to um, to reinstate it, to pass it again, to continue liberalizing trade. So there's this big debate in the 40s amongst labor unions about what to do. Uh, and the main difference between unions in the United States in the 40s and the developing countries I talk about in the 80s and 90s is that you had powerful unions in the United States in exporting industries. So like think about the auto industry, the steel industry in the 1940s. You've got like the CIO, the UAW, the United Steel Workers. You've got these very powerful unions in export industries, which, again, we talked about earlier. It's basically non-existent in developing countries in the 1980s and 1990s. Those unions with uh, like very clear commitments from their employers to share profits with their workers. So if Ford and GM have a great year, if you know the steel companies have a great year, wages are going to rise for those unionized workers. So you have confidence and support for free trade from unions in the United States. Mm-hmm. There were also unions in the 40s that were protectionists that thought they wouldn't be able to compete after opening. And those unions lobbied for trade protection, just like the unions that I talk about uh, in Argentina and India. The, the issue, though, is that within the labor movement, you have the split, some opposed to trade and some in favor, which mm-hmm. meant that 
the overall balance of, of labor's position sort of balance each other's out, out sort of, right? So whereas, you know, Menem, like I was talking about, or in India in the 90s, Democratic leaders had to think about, like, how to overcome union opposition. In the U.S. in the 40s, there was sort of like a split labor ticket you could think of it as. And because of them balancing each other out, there was no need to repress the protectionist unions. They were sort of mm-hmm. um, counterbalanced by the pro-trade unions. Mm-hmm. And, okay. and there are sort of structural reasons why that was possible in the United States. It's a dominant, you know, industrial powerhouse in the 40s. Uh, most of Western Europe's economy had been destroyed by the war. And so there was like, um, you know, just enormous amounts of profits to be made and to be shared with workers who had unions that were, had been supported by the New Deal. And so there's uh-huh. all these contingencies in the background. Uh, and then, you know, the reasons why those kinds of unions, powerful unions are absent developing countries, again, is a structural issue of uh, sort of global competition and low value added labor intensive industries where the profit margins are very small and the developmental strategy is to make sure the wages stay quite low. Okay. Um, So now, now you want to just kind of quickly allude to the story in India before we move on to the, the, the issues that we're now confronted with by virtue of how this is all played out. Cause there are some, that's one of your big case studies. There's some contrast with Argentina, right? Yeah. India is another case where, uh, you know, so, so like, like in Argentina, uh, there's a trans- transition to democracy, but for India, it's with independence back in the 1940s. And there's many, many decades of high tariffs and powerful labor unions in India. And then in the 1980s, there's a prime minister named Rajiv Gandhi who proposes opening up the Indian economy, privatizing many public uh, industries, and it triggers general strikes, just like in Argentina in the 80s. And those general strikes contribute to Rajiv Gandhi backing down, leaving tariffs where they were. Fast forward a few years to Narasimha Rao, a new prime minister in the early 1990s. He launches this very similar set of economic reforms called the New Economic Policy, lower tariffs, privatization, and other neoliberal economic reforms. And again, it leads to a series of general strikes by labor unions in India. And uh, whereas Rajiv Gandhi had allowed those general strikes to take place without really cracking down on workers' rights to to organize and strike like that, Narasim Harrell, looking back on what happened in the 80s, decides to take a very different path. And so what he does uh, in 1992, uh, in the days leading up to a general strike against his reforms, uh, he starts to use what's called the Indian government starts to use what's called the power of preventive arrest, uh, which uh, your listeners might recognize from Tom Cruise's movie Minority Report. Uh, In India, uh, inherited from the common law tradition from Britain and enshrined in the Indian constitution, the government has the right to arrest people that they suspect will break the law in the future. Mm -hmm. That's convenient. Um, It's convenient for breaking a strike. And so uh, what they did was... um, they, the week before, in the days leading up to the general strike, they detained 25,000 union members around the country and hold them, hold them in, in prisons uh, in various parts of the country until the general strike is done. And then they let them go without any charges. Uh-huh. And the purpose... Um, of course, that does lead to a kind of a labor slowdown, doesn't it? I mean, isn't, yeah, that a, isn't it, it, it a facto strike when you lock up every worker in an industry? So, that, so, so I had the same the same puzzle. I had to work through it uh, in the archives. Basically, what's going on is they're arresting mostly the transportation union workers 
And what they do during general strikes in India is to picket the main train stations and bus stations to try to shut down the transportation system. Mm-hmm. And when they shut down the transportation system through picketing that way, then nobody can go to work I and be able to claim, you know, like exponentially more people stayed away from work and joined the strike. And so in the Indian press before and after these general strikes, there are debates about how big the strike is going to be in anticipation. And then after the strike, there's debates about how big it was. And there's agreement on both sides, right or wrong, that this is a barometer. The size of the strike is a barometer for public opinion on the reforms. And as you go over time, there's a series of general strikes. There was actually a prior one in 1991 that wasn't repressed. And so in 92, they're debating, is this strike going to be bigger or smaller? And so this decision to preventively arrest people, to stop them from picketing, to make sure that the strike is a little bit smaller, they're hoping to make it smaller than the previous one, the government can then claim, look, the strikes are getting smaller over time. We're winning the the battle of ideas about these economic reforms. The working class is is coming on our side. Uh, But in the background there, and again, a story that's been totally ignored uh, in in like huge literature on Indian reform. This is one of the, the, period, the, the cases where people most famously say that Narasimha Rao, the, the democratically elected prime minister, was like a reform genius, that he obfuscated what was going on. He confused people about what he was doing. He made it unclear what the consequences would be. And people tell that story without acknowledging that 25 million people joined a general strike against the reforms and that, that those uh, strikes would have been even larger if not for this really strategic and draconian use uh, of a draconian law to preventively mm-hmm. arrest people, uh, to very clearly, you know, meddle and restrict workers' rights okay. to the rest. So how does this story end in, in India? They open up uh, with those okay. strikes under control and the, and the government increasingly able to claim that worker opposition is drying up because they're, they're you know, being convinced that the reforms are the only way to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, Narasim Harao slashes tariffs by over 50% and opens up the Indian economy. And uh, the unions never recover in Argentina or, or India. And this is one thing I want to flag. I'm happy to go back to these three questions you mentioned earlier. But one thing I want to put on the agenda is the long-term consequences of this. So there can be debates about, you know, there are obviously debates about what the consequences of opening were. We've already talked about these cleavages within uh, workers, right, that some workers in these unions were going to lose out and hundreds of thousands of them lost their jobs. But the creation of new jobs and export industries did create jobs and, and mm-hmm. you know, at some point higher wages for lots of other workers, right? Yeah, I mean, somewhat famously, there's been a pretty radical reduction of poverty in China and India during the period of trade liberalization and clearly to some extent as a consequence of it, right? Yep. And I, and I think, what, you know, one of the main goals of the book is to say um, that there are negative, there's like a, another side mm-hmm. of the ledger that's been ignored. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for those people who are convinced that this was for the greater good, that it alleviated poverty, that it increased employment, that it raised wages, that's fine. Uh, it, you know, people can debate that. But but my point is, and without arguing against that necessarily, I'm saying there was also this repression that took place. And so descriptively, we want to set the record straight. Normatively, I think most people would agree that it's problematic for a democracy to be repressing labor unions in this way. And then the longer term consequences, if we're going to acknowledge, you know, the potential alleviation of poverty as a positive, we also have to think about the long term consequences of labor repression and the weakening of labor unions in developing in in, uh, developing countries with democratic governments. 
And one of those long-term consequences may be the erosion of democracy itself. Mm -hmm. Unions uh, played crucial roles in the struggle for democracy in many developing countries, and then in the sustaining um, of democracy for many years. The weakening of unions, uh, many scholars point to as an enabling condition for the rise of the far right um, and the erosion of, of democracy. Uh-huh. Uh, partially because unions are less able to mobilize workers to the polls, partially because uh, weaker unions are unable to support higher, provide higher wages and less income inequality that might inoculate people against uh, far right appeals. But in various ways, the weakening of unions is linked to the erosion of democracy itself. So that, that broader question of the pros and cons of globalization and the process through which developing democracies opened up in the 80s and 90s, if we're going to put the alleviation of poverty on the positive side, I think we have to put the normative downside of repression on the negative side. And then it's, uh, you know, the, the jury's still out on whether or not the long-term consequences of the democratic strategy for opening up, one of the consequences might be the erosion of democracy itself. Okay. Uh, and then there's another negative uh, side, which is better known, which is, again, the effect on uh, some workers in developed countries and the kind of uh, internal political implications of that. I mean, the election of Donald Trump is an extreme example but mm-hmm. and, and, maybe, and was contingent on a number of things. But you can pretty well predict uh, that trade liberalization may... Uh, lower the wages of a substantial number of workers or make the wages rise less than they otherwise would have and perhaps increase economic inequality within that country and uh, and lead to some kind of political backlash and be kind of destabilizing and so on. And 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 I guess that's what I had been focused on as I wrote about to the extent that I did write about trade in in like uh, the 90s as NAFTA happened and so on. And my hope, and and, and by the way, I, 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 I think that the class I taught of that you were in, and I believe this was the first college course I'd ever taught. I haven't taught many of them. I'm, I'm not a credentialed academic, uh, but the dean of the college at Penn had uh, had read a book of mine and 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 we wound up talking and he said, Do you want to teach a class? And and I think because I never taught a class, I, I I thought, well, let's start out the easy way. I'll basically have them read a book I've written very slowly. So that can consume a lot of seminar time and I won't, I won't have to anyway, I'm I'm pretty sure you read non-zero. Uh and and an argument I made in non-zero was that the way to, as I recall, at least it's been a long time, uh, the way to handle the tension I'm describing between the various benefits of international trade, which I think are many, and the downside that was most apparent to me at the time, which is the impact on workers in developed countries, was uh, transnational governance. In other words, okay, you do the trade deals like NAFTA, but you also make those agreements, you know, meaningful forums for negotiating with labor uh, in ways that reduce the impact, that kind of slow the disruption down, if nothing else. Uh, and of course, there was some of that in NAFTA nominally, 
right? The 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 uh, you know it was uh, it was done by a Democratic administration. They had to at least nod to labor in those days. I mean, you know, now uh, you know labor's uh, allegiance is less clearly and obviously attached to the Democratic Party. Back then, it pretty much was. Um, and uh, so they had these these things, but they weren't very meaningful, right? And and I mean, first of all, and I do I want to get back to this Trump thing, because I think it was more it is however small and modest it may be and however little impact it may even had. I think qualitatively, it's kind of a, an interesting kind of thing. But 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 first, I, I want to say that your book may resolve a little bit of a, a puzzle or a little bit of tension within my own argument. I mean, I remember when I used to say, well, we should build meaningful labor uh, accords into things like NAFTA, I would hear, and I heard it from a U.S. senator at the time, uh, said it directly. He said, no, no, I mean, you, you don't understand. I mean, the whole re- first of all, the whole reason for these, the whole reason these things are appealing uh, at both ends uh, is because of the reduction in labor costs you get by moving uh, things to the low-wage countries. And that is the source of their appeal in the developing countries, right? And and that suggested that there's going to be zero political support for what I want in the developing countries. But your your argument suggests that well maybe it's a little more than you might think. There 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 actually is a part of the labor you know there is organized labor in these countries that would like to slow things down mm-hmm. and like for these transitions to happen a little more slowly, right? Yeah, they'd like the transitions to happen more slowly, and this happened during NAFTA. There were transnational. Um, you know, efforts of unions in the U.S. and Mexico and Canada uh, to try to build some kind of coalition um, to to re- to revise the or to, to influence the negotiations of NAFTA, but it was one to slow it down to to slow the transition for workers in Mexico that were going to be harmed, but also to institute meaningful labor reform that would allow the workers in the new export industries to actually capture some of those gains. So there are debates about like. If the whole developmental model is that wages will stagnate as productivity and profits rise, then that's not going to actually benefit workers. And so there are arguments about how do we make sure that we don't just become like a permanent low wage platform for exports to the United States. And people are, you know, unions uh, in Mexico were arguing for uh, unions that would increase wages along with productivity to make sure that they shared in the benefits of NAFTA in Mexico. But, you know, none of that came about in, in the 1990s. Um, Can I ask you, do you know which kinds of sectors these unions were in in uh, in Mexico? Yeah, there was an independent union. called So, so Mexican labor politics is, is very complicated. I'm actually on my way to Mexico City later this afternoon to do some mm. field work. Um, there are um, the, the main uh, official union is is affiliated with the, the PRI, the, the dominant party in Mexico for many years. Yeah. And then there's independent unions that aren't aligned um, with the, the government. And a lot of independent unions uh, were fighting against NAFTA, and they, they were mostly in the maquila sector. So these export-oriented, you know, um, low-wage factories. Did, did that include auto parts? The thought was small, and I think represented some mm-hmm. auto workers mm-hmm. uh, and also some like textile and garment tech workers. The maquila Dora was that was a term for factories located near the border uh, that that became, I think, uh, eligible for. Sp- particularly preferential treatment or something. Is that what you mean by Maquila? They were, they were, they had located near the U S border. Yep. 
Yep. And, and yeah, the argument was, look, if the idea is just to create employment here, but wages are never going to rise, that's going to you know, only be a limited benefit for, for Mexican workers. And so there were unions arguing for something like what's happened today. So I, I do want to say I've been talking with people from the, Depart- the U.S. Department of Labor and the a U.S. Trade Representative's Office lately. And they're extremely enthusiastic about the USMCA, the NAFTA 2.0 you talked about earlier, mm-hmm. and like the real teeth that they think it has for bringing cases against the violation of labor rights in Mexico in a way that, like you said, nominally, there was a side agreement to NAFTA on labor, but there was really no teeth, mm-hmm. uh, no real enforcement capacity. And then even in CAFTA, the Central American Free Trade Agreement signed in the 2000s, there was, again, an effort to... Uh, make those things uh, a little bit stronger, but they still failed. Uh, someone from the USTR told me about a case that they brought against Guatemala that went on for eight years and ultimately was lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, but under the USMCA, there's this rapid response, I think it's called, um, mechanism to to like really bring cases of uh, when when the laws in Mexico have been violated in Mexico, you can bring a case uh, and they've been, and they they claim they've been very successful mm-hmm. so far. They've already won at least six cases in a short period of time, compared to bringing one case that loses over eight years. Uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm about um, that. Maybe they've gotten it right this time, and the trade uh, agreements between the U.S. and, and Mexico, and obviously in Canada too, is included, uh, will finally be a mechanism to actually meaningfully increase labor rights uh, in Mexico. But but you know, again, the jury is still out on that. And just to be clear about the political logic from the point of view of American workers is to the extent that unions are empowered in Mexico through this mechanism or others, they can probably wind up getting paid a little more in the long run. And that reduces the competition that American workers face. That's right. Uh, now, as I said, there's there's another approach to that that was uh, built into uh, USMCA or NAFTA 2. And uh, it, it was this thing, and you you know more than I do about whether this wound up having any consequence, but it was just interesting in its nature. It was this, like, there was a rule that nearly, that for a car to qualify for the, the treatment, the fair, you know, within NAFTA free trade treatment within these three countries, um, nearly half of the parts, 40, 45% or something, had to be built in factories paying at least 16 dollars an hour and that i guess i assume kind of confronts uh you know some mexican factory owners with a choice you can either uh you know at least on the margins in some cases you can either pay this much money or see some of your uh these parts made in america in the u.s or canada instead because the car makers are going to require you know the logic is kind of obvious i guess now, I don't know if that wound up mattering much, but but interestingly, uh, it was, I think, favored uh, by the Mexican government, which at that point was a left wing government uh, over a door. Right. And uh, and uh, I assume that was because there were unions that would benefit that were associated with him. But I don't know what 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 was the deal there? Do you know? I don't know that the, the specific. Um details of the like the um, the percentage of a of a car's parts that yeah. need to be in under the USMCA but i think the logic that you're laying out you know of of a regulation like that is clear that it would you know sort of level the playing field for workers in the united states mm-hmm. um 
I will say that the, the the thing that people are most excited about, um, and again, I'm, I'm I'm like just starting to delve into the Mexican labor politics recently, um, is this new law that was that was passed, I think, in 2019 by the Lopez Obrador government, um, which is going to hopefully make it easier for independent unions to compete against these old official unions, um, enabling um, a sort of like uh, more aggressive independent unions that will actually represent workers. So a lot of the concerns about these old official unions is that the contracts they negotiate are sometimes uh, what are called protection contracts, where the whole point of the contract is to basically make sure that you don't get an actual union that would fight for workers, working conditions and wages in that factory. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very hard to, to, to oust a union once it's represented. And so the new law is going to require, it goes into effect May 1st, 2023. It's going to require uh, workers in factories that have a, a collective bargaining agreement on the books that they're going to have to vote whether or not they want to keep that contract. And many workers don't even know that they have a contract, right? Because it's these background protection type contracts. And so that's going to wipe the slate clean and create a competitive environment in which independent unions uh, might arise to represent workers and actually fight um, much more aggressively um, to increase wages for Mexican workers. And that would then again, through the building of independent unions that are that are uh, willing to represent the demands of rank and file workers more, would again increase wages for Mexican workers and help to level that playing mm-hmm. field between Mexico and the United States and Canada. And I guess, uh, you know, my Econ 101 professor mm-hmm. would insist that I point out that there are always these complicated trade-offs within countries. I mean, you know, people rightly point out that a minimum wage uh, may, while uh, raising, you know, the, the the quality of life for the majority of workers, leave some number of workers who would have had a job out of out of the uh, out of employment. There can be those kinds of dynamics, I'm sure to the extent that they exist. And people argue, of course, about how strong they are and whether, you know, how or negligible yeah, I think they are. A lot of recent research suggests that there's not a trade-off that you can increase. No, no trade-off at all? You know, I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding is that a lot of, like, the carefully done research looking at, like, across states, um, some that have increased, some that haven't, matching yeah. work across the states, that there's very little, if any, uh, trade-off in employment. But, you know, under certain circumstances and as you said, it's a, it's a debated topic, but it's certainly not the um, the sort of shibboleth that it used to be, right? That it was just like understood that increasing the minimum wage had this ter- terrible consequence of lowering employment. Right. You know, that that's no longer the commonly held view. Yeah. Anyway, I was going to say that to the extent that these dynamics exist, they would exist within Mexico. And, and to the extent that you raise the floor, there may be a few people uh, who, who, who drop off of it or whatever. But I, that's just an asterisk. The larger point is that it is in the interest of workers in developing countries to see that, uh, well, first of all, the actual labor laws in developing countries are enforced. But secondly, to see that uh, kind of the labor standards, just like right to organize, right, that that are uh, recognized nominally internationally, actually apply in developing countries uh and in you know look in some sense the logic uh the incentive is self-serving in developed countries but uh the fact is it's there so there is this you know there is this kind of workers of the world unite dynamic and and uh there is a, a commonality of interest 
between a large number of, say, American workers and a large number of Mexican workers. And I've always thought that to the extent that they use um, vehicles like NAFTA to to do this work, you know, it, it gives NAFTA some buy-in from from labor and and people who want to see free trade broadly speaking flourish. That is to say, economic engagement between countries grow both because you know it does it does uh, according to fairly standard economic reasoning raise aggregate prosperity, leaving aside how that is divided right within the country, but it raises aggregate prosperity. I think it has pacifying effects in terms of making war less likely. But if you believe those things, you should, I think, favor uh, these trade agreements uh, becoming the fora for actual meaningful uh, discourse leading that actually has concrete impact on on labor law and the enforcement of labor law. Right. I think I think that's right. And and the, the people who are you know, excited about the USMCA are very critical of the previous attempts at doing this at CAFTA and NAFTA uh, that, you know, you're right. It, it, it helped get some buy-in. The, le- the labor and environmental, you know, side agreements in NAFTA helped to get some buy-in. Clinton could say like, you know, look, we, we did something. Um, but in terms of like the agreements actually having some teeth that are, you know, some real enforceability, people seem, you know, again, who are much more expert on this than me, seem to think that they really are getting it right now for the first time with the USMCA. Well, that's very encouraging. And, you know, to give Clinton some credit, just the fact of putting it on paper, regardless of whether it had teeth, that was a precedent and allowed people to say, hey, this wasn't shit, man. We have to get serious, you know, and and, and that's part of the process of of the evolution of uh, international governance. But, you know, I, I, I think I, I wrote a long piece for uh, Wired that I think roughly no one read. It was in the actual physical Wired in the magazine a couple of years ago called, I think, Make Globalism Great Again or something. And it was about, I, I, I drew attention to some of the things Trump was doing in, in the context of NAFTA too. But the argument was like, look, if you are terrified by a Trumpist, highly nationalist movement, you should want to direct some of the energy behind it to these transnational uh, bodies uh, and convince some of the people in, in Trump's base that they can actually get some of what they want through, you know, a kind of transnational governance that is associated with globalism, which uh, Trump would say he hates. And of course, Trump explicitly says he hates global governance. He explicitly says he hates international governance. And yet he participated in an actual, uh, I would say, improvement of it. Uh, So there's that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I also uh, share your... uh, hesitancy in praising former President Trump in any way. Uh, and I and I won't, uh, but I will say that um, the people at the Department of Labor in the USTR are, th- that I see as, as progressive sort of like left advocates for uh, sort of rebalancing globalization, thinking critically about how globalization, spe- specifically trade with the United States, could be used to increase respect for workers' rights in developing countries. That they are extremely excited about the mechanisms made possible by the USMCA. Mm-hmm. And in principle, you know, this can uh, this can 
be replicated in other whole other economic fora. Uh, you know, we, we wound up opting out of the trans-Pacific thing, and I have no idea what the substance of that was, but this kind of logic can be applied in principle to a revised version of that or, or, or anything else. I mean, I think we're a ways away from a global minimum wage. Uh, I won't live to see that. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily saying, saying it's, it's a critical part of uh, anybody's agenda, but I, I think it's really important that, you know, these transnational agreements of various kinds start, you know, meaningfully recognizing the interests of labor. And, and the environmental stuff, too, but that's a separate topic. Yeah, it's a separate topic. I, I think I'll just say that, you know, one of the ways that my book fits in with this broader conversation about USMCA and, and bringing labor rights into trade agreements more is that it, it gives hopefully some ammunition to people that uh, see the need for globalization to change to accomplish these goals. Right. So like the that earlier conventional wisdom we talked about, about like democracy leading to free trade which automatically raises wages for workers throughout the developing world. Like in that, in that mindset, there's no, there's like very little need for this, right? Like uh, free trade in developing countries or trade liberalization in developing countries is going to like increase thing, increase wages and working conditions for workers through market forces sort of automatically. Um, and so like this sort of revisionist account of like, no, that's not at all, you know, the full story. There's this history of labor repression, even by democratic governments, that 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 sort of like what happened in countries uh, during this process, I, I think, is like an important background for thinking about why something like these rapid response mechanisms are so important today. Mm -hmm. I agree. Uh, well, congratulations on everything. Uh, congratulations on the book, which has been out, what, a few weeks or a couple months or what? A couple of months now. It came out early October. Uh-huh. Good. Uh, and you're getting your, you're uh, happy with the feedback. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been fun. This is my second book. I wrote one in 2016, which I won't, I won't uh, go into detail about now, but we'll go ahead and plug the title at least. Uh, that first book was called from conflict to coalition. And, and it talks a lot about labor unions and international trade, uh, specifically looking at when unions join their employers to lobby for the same trade policy, right? Mm -hmm. so similar to this book, this idea that there, there's often class conflict within an industry about trade policy. So the steel workers might not always support a, a tariff for the steel industry, even though it's going to increase the profits of that industry, if they doubt that they're going to share in those profits. And so it's only when unions are powerful enough and sort of have a commitment from their employers that they'll share profits with workers that you get the kind of cross-class coalition that people often take for granted. Okay. Well... So that's another book uh, for people to read. This one is called Opening Up by Cracking Down Labor Repression and Trade Liberalization in Democratic Developing Countries. You are holding the book up at this very moment, Adam. Uh, I taught you well. Um, the, uh, and uh, our, our audio, our, our podcast listeners can't, uh, can't see it, but it's, it's a nice jacket. Hold it up again. It's a nice, you know, university, you know, Presses don't always do a great job. Now, is that some uh, famous mural? That's a Diego Rivera mural from right. the uh, Palacio Nacional in Mexico City. Uh huh. Nice, nice book jacket. Thank you. Uh, well, okay. Well, keep up the good work. Thanks for taking the time, Adam, and, and we'll see you again. Thanks so much.